This is episode 238 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Skeletal Stem Cells with Dr. Noriaki Ono. Hey everybody, we are Daylon James and Arun Sharma. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. The Stem Cell Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. If you enjoy the Stem Cell Podcast, rate us and leave a review. We're always looking for feedback on how the podcast can be improved and for suggestions on guests. Today, we have Dr. Noriaki Ono from the University of Texas on the podcast to talk about his research on the function of skeletal stem cells in development, disease, and regeneration of bone and cartilage. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in stem cell news. That's coming right up. But first, are you attending ICCR 2023? Dalon, myself, and the entire Stem Cell podcast team will be attending the meeting in Boston, Massachusetts from June 14th to the 17th. If you're attending the meeting, drop by the Exhibitor Hall to find the Stem Cell Podcast booth and learn how you can be featured on a future episode. We'll see you there. All right, Arun, I'm kicking off the roundup with a bombshell. Very exciting for the world, also for my specific field. This is news that came out of the International Summit of Human Genome Editing, the third international summit. The second international summit on human genome editing took place just over four years ago, November 2018. You know what they announced then? Yeah, John Cahay doing genetic engineering of human babies, right? So that was another bombshell. And here at the very next international summit, although it took some time, they have another major announcement. In this case, I'm not going to bury the lead here. It's generation of live offspring from two males in mice, okay? Um, this is a story from one of my idols, uh, Katsuhiku Hayashi, uh, who came out of Mitsunori Saitu's lab and has been made famous now for his work on generating germ cells from pluripotent stem cells. And in this case, he really went above and beyond. This is work that he's been moving towards for over a decade, and he's finally accomplished it. Much congratulations to him. And that's it. I mean, the story is he was able to make an XY background into XX and generate primordial germ cells and then oocytes from that background. And I think what's interesting here is the way he went about it as opposed to the way that maybe a lot of people thought it might be done. So primordial germ cells, which are the precursors of sperm and oocytes, they arise in the extra embryonic region and then they migrate to the general, re to the general ridges. Um, and that's where sex differentiation occurs in response to these local factors that are present in that somatic environment. Um, and for that reason, the primordial germ cells are thought to be bipotent. Uh, even XY could become an egg um, given the right environment, given a female gonad uh, gonadic somatic environment. But despite that idea and this bipotential capacity for the primordial germ cells, many studies have shown that uh, when you try to do that, when you try and differentiate a XX primordial germ cell into spermatogonia, it doesn't work at all. If you try and generate XY primordial germ cells into oocytes, it does work, but they have very low fertility. And that's starting from primordial germ cells that arise in the actual, in mice in these cases. Um, uh, and this has been attributed to the fact that in these XY chromosomes, you have mispairing 
of a hetero, heterogeneous sex chromosome. So the XY mispair in trying to make an oocyte, or you get ectopic expression of these Y specific factors um, because the Y chromosome is there. So the first part of this study was just to confirm that. They, they showed that either if you get uh, if you start with XY or if you get dropout and just like a XO, a non-XX uh, background that you really can't get uh, primordial germ uh, cells to generate oocytes. Um, and this is where they, you know, went into the serious engineering part of this story to, to get to the endpoint, which was this bipaternal offspring, is they just, you know, broke the thing down to the guts. Uh, they took uh, the... XY background and had to remove the Y chromosome and then duplicate the X chromosome. And this is predicated on the idea or the fact uh, that's been observed that one to 3% of XY pluripotent stem cells, they spontaneously lose their, their Y chromosome. So you get one to 3% of these XY background, they'll just spontaneously become XO or just a single X chromosome background. Uh, and so the, the group, Hayashi's group, they just cultured ES cells uh, for eight passages and found that a small percentage of them lost their Y chromosome, in this case, 6%, five out of 87 subclones. And then they, in those subclones, they were able to duplicate the X chromosome um, because, you know, and this is getting a little bit freaky here, uniparental disomy of the X chromosome, it happens, you know, X chromosomes under, undergo this uneven distribution into daughter cells and they can be duplicated. Although that's quite a rare occurrence, uh, the Hayashi group used a couple methods there to enrich for that. One was they knocked in this DS red into uh, X, into the X chromosome so that they could gauge by way of fluorescence intensity, you know, 2X chromosomes, 2X the intensity, they could identify which of those subsets underwent the duplication. So that was the readout. And then they enriched for this uh, misdistribution by using reversing, which is an inhibitor of spindle assembly, assembly checkpoint that enhances the missegregation. Uh, and that was it. I mean, they were able to then duplicate the X chromosome and then they went through the protocols that Hayashi Group has established over many years to differentiate first into primordial germ cells and then using uh, uh, ovarian somatic cells to differentiate those into functional oocytes that then gave rise to live birth. And I think an important note here is that you, you may be wondering with all these chromosomal manipulations, you know, what does that leave? for a, you know, a starting point in terms of the genomic integrity. And they did actually do DNA sequencing analysis of the ESL clones that they under that underwent this Y dropout and then X duplication and showed that they are one euploid, two didn't have any large insertions or deletions that were detectable at the resolution used for this analysis. So I wouldn't say ironclad in terms of whether or not there's some genetic aberrations there at the, you know, single nucleotide level. But I mean, forget that. This is a, a huge result. Um, and it's, I don't know that it's going to change clinical care. Arun, you know, I've been outspoken about whether or not it's ever going to be safe to use uh, gametes that are derived from embryonic stem cells, pluripotent stem cells in the human. But regardless, I mean, this is an amazing feat that I think really boggles the mind and borders on science fiction. And the day has finally arrived Congratulations to you, Dr. Ayashi. 
Yeah, and you and I are both science fiction fans. It's been noted here on the show before, and I agree with you. This is one of those sci-fi becomes sci-fact moments in the stem cell field. And I definitely think that in this subfield of stem cell biology, which is reproductive biology, there have been a number of these bombshell stories over the last couple of years. You know, we've talked about Magdalena Zernica Goats and also, you know, Jacob Hanna's, their their work on the roller cultures and the artificial embryo work, synthetic embryos. And now here we are generating viable functional oocytes from male mice, something that I think, and you're closer to the field than I am. I think this was inevitable. This is something that was going to happen in, in the next few years. But here we are here. It's, you know, it's very exciting to, to see this happen in mice. And of course, inevitably people are going to ask, and certainly people are asking given the the prominence of the study, when is this going to be impossible, possible in humans? And I was reading some of the, uh, the press pieces that came with, with this article. And I believe the Hayashi group mentioned somewhere that, you know, they're spitballing ballparking a little bit here, but they're saying that within 10 years, they will be able to make this happen in humans as well. As we know, human reproductive biology is extremely complicated, much more complicated than in these mouse studies. And there are a lot of experimental and technical details and hurdles that have to be overcome, but it's the hope that gets you, right? And certainly there's a lot of hope for for gay couples in particular with this type of technology. That's really one of the, the major pieces of hope with this particular study. Um, a couple other things just to allude to and to emphasize, the percentages were low in terms of the efficiency of the process. There was a lot of engineering, as you also mentioned, that had to happen um, and, and multiple steps along that process, the percentages were low. So that in itself just is reflection of how impressive this feat is and how impressive the Hayashi group has been in, in making this a, a reality. You know, one other science fiction thought out there is perhaps you can, I don't know, maybe this is something they're considering doing, and I don't know what the downstream ramifications of this possibility would be, but what if you could self-fertilize, I don't know, make an oocyte from a male mouse and then self-fertilize it with that male mouse's own sperm? Is that viable? What, Why you would do that? I don't know, other than scientific curiosity, but maybe that's something that they're considering here. I don't know. The Pandora's box is open here, right? I mean, this is, this is an incredible study, one of those really landmark papers in the stem cell field, and I'm very excited to, to cover it here today. Yeah, man, you said science fiction to science fact. And that example or possibility that you're alluding to, I think that's totally in the ballpark. And I guarantee you there's some people like maybe Jeffrey Bezos out there trying to throw a few million dollars to fund a little kind of pseudo clone of himself. <clears throat> but I want to emphasize again, I mean, you alluded to, to Hayashi Group, or you specified a Hayashi Group talking about 10 years. But I, I think... Uh, the, Hayashi was also very careful to to emphasize that that was only provided that the safety is very well established. And, and while the practicality and efficiency is a sticking point, I think the major sticking point here is all the genetic manipulations that have to be uh, undergone in order to, to reach your endpoint. In spite of the fact that these uh, genomes look normal, I, I think the risk is too high and the resolution of our analysis is not fine enough to really definitively demonstrate that uh, a cell gamete at this point is not going to be introducing uh, some germline mo germline modifications 
that are irreversible and might irrevocably alter our society and our biology. So uh, I think while 10 years may be, it may be practical, I think it may be a long time before we're ready to actually practice this. But that doesn't stop our phones here at the IVF clinic from ringing off the hook from gay couples or just, you know, interested couples who, who want to know what the, the potential for this technology is uh, in humans and clinical translation. And I'm not the one to answer that question, thankfully, but I will say it to you, as I've said before, Rune, I am very uh, skeptical uh, about the safety and concerned given the stakes. Absolutely. And I, I completely agree with your skepticism and there is certainly after what happened with CRISPR, you know, in the human embryo editing a couple of years ago, I, I think the entire field is on alert and is aware of the ethical dilemmas that are associated with some of these technologies, especially, especially anytime you're messing with reproduction, right? Whether it's, you know, genome editing of the early embryo, whether it's generation of sperm and gametes, anytime you're touching that topic of reproduction, it's going to be a certainly ethically charged. And actually, kind of on that note, and hinting at a future episode of ours, we are going to be having a, a conversation with Dr. Insu Hyun in a few weeks here, who's actually a prominent ethicist in Boston, is one of the leaders at the ISCR, and can't wait to talk to him about some of this, some of these really exciting embryo, you know, embryo technologies that have come about in the last couple of years. So stay tuned for that. Moving on to a nature genetics paper. It's um, certainly not that level of a bombshell, but it's very exciting in my mind, and it's shedding light on a phenomenon in liver regeneration that I'm not super well-versed with, and I actually had no idea that this particular concept was a reality of bipotent transitional liver progenitor cells uh, contributing to liver regeneration. That's the title of the story. Apparently, after there's a really severe liver injury, um, and hepatocyte-mediated regeneration is impaired. As we know, the liver is really regenerative, right? It's that hallmark, that quintessential regenerative organ in the human body. In really severe cases of injury, those regenerative properties in the hepatocytes are nullified, okay? They're lost. But what I didn't know, and again, I'm not a liver biologist, maybe this is a common fact for liver biologists, but I didn't know that there's other cell types like biliary epithelial cells or BECs that can actually transdifferentiate into functional hepatocytes in in cases of injury. So this phenomenon, this transdifferentiation, is certainly very exciting, but it hasn't been fleshed out. Okay, and the subset of these biliary epithelial cells that can you know have this stem cell potential and transforming into hepatocytes, it, that needs to be fleshed out. Okay. That those, those subsets need to be identified, characterized, and also the mechanisms actually enabling this trans differentiation process have to be figured out. Right. So what they did here, and this is a lab of Bin Zhou over in the Shanghai Institute of Biochemistry and Cell Biology, uh, they identified a transitional liver progenitor cell or TLPC as they called it, which actually originates from these biliary epithelial cells and can differentiate into hepatocytes during regeneration from severe liver injury. They did a bunch of lineage tracing here, uh, dual lineage tracing approach. I think that's probably why this is a, a nature genetics paper. We don't always cover a lot of nature genetics paper here on the show, but 
they did a ton of genetic lineage tracing here um, using Cree ER as their their driver approach, and they found that these TLPCs or transitional liver progenitor cells are bipotent. So they can either turn into hepatocytes or they can actually readopt a biliary epithelial cell fate and phenotype. And mechanistically, what's the, the driver of this whole process? Well, it's it's notch and went beta-catenin signaling, um, maybe not super surprising. That can actually f- orchestrate this bipotency and whether these bipotent epithelial, uh, these biliary epithelial cells can transition into hepatocytes. Okay. So that signaling pathway is critical for this transition process. And it's really neat. I think it's, you know, relatively straightforward study, a lot of nitty gritty lineage tracing that had to go on to, to make this, uh, study a reality, but I think it's shedding light on a phenomenon that I had very little information about, but I think it's uh, falling in line with some of the other stories that we've talked about recently on the show of trans differentiation and how this process whereby cells can directly transform and from one cell type to another, it might be more common than we'd like to think in the human body. So it, a neat story, really nuts to bolts about this trans differentiation process. And uh, I'm excited to see what other stories are coming out that unveil that trans differentiation is happening all the time in our bodies, like from head to toe. Yeah. And if anyone's going to, going to put their finger on it, it's Ben Zhao. He's been a total boss when it comes to these reporter lines and Cree models and locks and all that. He, um, for years, I remember I was in a session with him where he went over all the Cree mice that he had underway. And there was literally like 25 plus at different stages of development. And um, I, I'm really gratified to see how he's applied them, you know, a toolmaker, tinker, now really getting at the, the underpinnings of biology. And, and in this case, it was always about cell fate with him in different organ systems and, and transition. But here, I, I love this idea, as, as you said there, the, these trans differentiation events, as we've you know grown accustomed to considering all these, these systems in the static steady state, uh, more and more we're appreciating the flux between cell types. And, and this is a system that I think very elegantly illustrates that flux. And as you uh, said there as well, uh, I think it's just the tip of the iceberg in terms of transition um, and plasticity in, in our body in many different organs. So another great study from Ben the boss, and uh, I'm just looking for his next Cree line. I mean, he's been also been very generous providing them to the scientific community. So uh, a real contributor in, in many different facets uh, and a great story here. Yeah, that's great to hear. I mean, anytime a prominent scientist can freely and openly provide their their tool sets to the greater scientific community like i'm a fan of that person whoever it is whether it's you know people depositing their plasmids on adgene or sharing their cell lines or sharing the Cree mice that's how ideally science should be conducted right i think this is a really cool story and i'm going to get my stem cell card my stem cell scientist card revoked here in a second by by saying what i'm about to say i'm going to say that pluripotency is overrated okay so we don't need pluripotency when you're talking about cell fate transition. You can go straight from one cell type to another in this trans differentiation approach. And people have artificially done that over the years. I remember one of the first papers that got me really excited about 
cardiac stem cell biology was actually this paper from uh, Shin, uh, from Deepak Srivastava's group over at UCSF like about 10, 15 years ago, where they directly converted fibroblasts into functional cardiomyocytes. And I was like, whoa, you know, that's that's just a concept that was so foreign to me. I thought you had to go through the stem cell state. Now, the efficiencies were low back then. They've improved over time. But the other exciting part of a story like this is that that trends differentiation idea is it's not just um, exogenous. It's not something that's artificial. It's something that's happening daily in the human body in cases of injuries, such as what's happening in the liver. And I think that's the next step to see, figure out, to figure out where else is this phenomenon happening and whether, what other context of, you know, just homeostasis or injury. I'm just excited about the concept. All right. <laughs> excited. I'm, I'm a little bit perturbed here. It's blasphemy. First you're you know, loving mice. I thought you were a cell guy. Now you're talking about Pluripertency is overrated. Oh my God, do you have a fever, Arun? What's going on? But I agree with you 100%. Um, plasticity is underrated. And I think uh, there's a lot of precedent in our body, as we said. So a lot more to come, hopefully, in the field of plasticity. And who cares about pluripotency, right? Ha, 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 ha. Well, I'll tell you, somebody <laughs> who cares about pluripotency is using it to great ends. And I have to apologize in advance. You probably think I'm playing favorites here, going with my neighborhood girl, Shubing Chen. But I can't help it. She's putting out work that is, you know, reaching great heights every other week. It's a major story. And this is no different story. Nature, cell biology about uh, Schumann's bread and butter. You know, we're looking at disease uh, tropisms. We're also looking at drug screening. Uh, in this case, talking about SARS-CoV-2, which we all know primarily infects the respiratory tract. But there's a, a wide range of uh, disease manifestations in the gastrointestinal, cardiovascular, neurological systems. So we know it's all over the place, right? It infects multiple cell types and organoid models have been applied across the board uh, by many individuals. I think Arun, you, you kind of dabbled, maybe not organoids, but you you looked at COBE2 uh, and these pluripotent stem cell systems. And all kinds of uh, different organoid systems, alveolar, lung, airway, small intestine, colon, brain, choroid, plexus, heart, liver, pancreas, kidney, blood vest, tonsils, Arun. I mean, all the organs, pretty much every single one have been used to study viral tropism, also used for drug screens. But uh, while there have been a lot of insights into the tropism element, uh, many key aspects of infection remain undetermined. Um, in particular, it's unknown whether there's common factors that you could block, you know, if there's a molecular mechanism to block uh, or resist uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection across all of these different cell types that are targeted. Because that would be amazing, right? If you could, you know, have a pharmacological approach to just mitigate the, the damage. Um, and that's what Shubing did in this story. She looked at changes in transcript profiles uh, in the context of uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection. Here's the key. They use different MOIs and they use three different organoid models, lung airway, lung alveolar, and cardiomyocytes. And they identified several genes and settled on CIART, which is the circadian associated repressor of transcription. And they showed here that if you knock out CIART in organoids um, compared to the isogenic control, 
the stem cells are significantly resistant to SARS-CoV-2 infection, even when you had viral entry. Uh, then they did some other omics analysis um, to show that the, in part that that CIART by way of NR4A1 is what mediates infection and then moved on uh, to look at, you know, profiling in the drug screening, uh, which is Schubing's bread and butter to show that the retinoid X receptor pathway is what regulates that infection downstream of CIART and NR4A1. So uh, pretty much straightforward, although very elegant and complicated study with a lot of moving parts and some CRISPR and gene targeting and drug screening, and phenotypic analysis, all kinds of omics, cut and run, ataxic, RNA-seq, a bevy of assays to get at this one single point. Is there a, a means to inhibit uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection across the board? Uh, and we've arrived here at a pharmacological, pharmacological approach which for me, yeah, granted, we're, we're out of the woods with COVID-2, but I think that this is all now a trial run for the next great pandemic. So I think these studies are still very important. Arun, what do you think? Yeah, I think that Shubing Chen has been proliferative as an understatement when it comes to her COVID-19 studies. And then I remember she put out some of the first organoid models of SARS-CoV-2 infection. And again, shout out to Shubing for actually citing my paper in this particular paper as well. Big plus there. Um, but she's been so helpful. And I think really, in my mind, the scientist that I think of in the stem cell field who has perhaps had the biggest contribution to understanding the mechanisms of SARS-CoV-2 infection across different cell types and, and tissue types. Um, I, I remember that initial cell stem cell paper, which came out in 2020, which characterized the infection of SARS-CoV-2 across all these different types of organoids. And it's just, I think, a reflection of just how collaborative she is as a scientist, because I undoubtedly, I don't think she has all of these approaches and these methodologies set up in her lab. And correct me if I'm wrong. But, you know, you see who's on this paper, Todd Evans and Benjamin Tanover and all these other experts in various other fields that are all coming together in the context of this paper. And again, you know, reflecting on how science should be, I think Shubing is a perfect example of how science should be. Collaborative scientists, not willing to, you know, to settle and is always willing to step outside of her comfort area because, you know, as of a couple of years ago, she wasn't working on coronavirus. She just so rapidly transitioned into this field and achieved such great success. So I'm a big fan. Shout out to Shubing. I actually met her in person for the first time a couple of months ago at our cell symposia conference here at Cedar Sinai. And uh can't wait to see, you know, her next big SARS-CoV-2 paper, but perhaps this is the tail end, right? As you were alluding to. So hopefully. I don't know, man. Wait, wait a couple of weeks. You might have one uh, another one hit the rack. But um yeah, as you said, she's being very nimble. And what you got to remember about her, she came out of the mountain lab. So you probably figure her for, you know, pancreas, diabetes. And that is a major interest of hers. But why she's so nimble is because she really has focused on and expanded the, the potential of these drug screening platforms and combined it with all the other developing CRISPR, other uh, techniques. And and as she said on the show, you know, she she uh, her interests wander. Uh, she follows the question and it leads to a lot of collaboration and to, to all of our benefits because she's really been an amazing contributor 
not just to this, but you know, Zika, many things across the board. Shubin has been one of the most productive scientists, I think, objectively in the field over the last decade. So congratulations again to you. And she's just a nice person. That's always the most important thing. She's just a good person. All right. So moving on to a JCI paper, which will be the last paper for the roundup this time. This is coming from the lab of Laura Wood. The title of this paper is a morphology-guided transcriptomic analysis of human pancreatic cancer organoids reveals microenvironmental signals that enhance invasion. You mentioned that Shubing trained in Doug Melton's lab, who is, of course, an expert in all things pancreas. Uh, this is more of a pancreatic cancer story, but in the same realm, I suppose. So pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma, pancreatic cancer in general, and we've talked about this a lot, is just such a sad and severe disease, and the prognosis is really grim. Um, it's This is, you know, PDAC in particular, pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma, has major issues with metastasis, a really bad prognosis for this particular type of cancer. But what makes it so invasive and what makes this metastasis co so common, uh, we still need to figure this out. We still need to get to the, the roots of the, the molecular programs and, and PDAC cells that are actually driving the invasion, right? And what they did here in the, the lab of Laura Wood, they used a pipeline that actually used PDAC organoid isolation from patients with pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma um, and, and basically collected different organoids from these patients, characterized them based on how invasive they were, and then did a really deep transcriptomic analysis of the invasion, invasion profiles in these organoids. They identified differentially expressed genes and the invasive organoids com compared to matched non-invasive organoids actually from the same patients, from like a different portion of the pancreas, I believe, maybe a portion of the pancreas that didn't have the tumor or something. And they've identified uh, three different transcriptomic groups in the invasive organoids, two of which are actually directly correlated with the invasion patterns. And some of the videos here are actually really cool. Uh, Dr. Wood actually presented on Twitter a, a nice Twitter thread that laid out uh, some of the videos from this paper showing the invasion of the different pancreatic organoids into the other organoids. So check out that. Check out those videos as well. For uh, I just love papers that have videos that are tweetable. I'm a fan of Twitter, right? Um, and that really convey the point. Because if a picture says a thousand words, then video says at least a billion, right? Mm -hmm. So anyways, they did a bunch of single cell RNA sequencing data, mapped their transcriptomic groups onto human PDAC tissue samples that are actually from publicly available data sets, and actually identified that there are that the critical driver of invasion here is the tumor microenvironment and potentially even the non-cancer cells in the tumor microenvironment can modulate the tumor cell invasion. And to further address that possibility, they performed computation, computational ligand receptor analysis and figured out that some pretty common and well-known pathways, including TGF-beta signaling pathway, uh, IL-6 signaling, CXCL12, are important for conferring this invasion and gene expression phenotype in these um, invasive cells in these pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma organoids. All right. So ultimately, they're identifying some important molecular programs that could be driving some of these invasion patterns in PDAC. And, and I've said this before, I'll say it again, anything, anything that helps us understand PDAC, pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma, pancreatic cancer in general, 
is is severely needed. And this this study is an important one, very important one. It got into JCI for a reason. It's such a sad prognosis. And I think we still have a lot of work to do to to understand the mechanisms of this really severe cancer. Yeah, major unmet, unmet need. And uh, when I see papers like this, I just think of like all the work that's been done for, you know, a hundred years in 2D cell culture. Now we got to do it all over again with the organoids, because I think there's greater insight and there's more to explore. Clearly in this case, the whole invasive angle is rendered in a much more clear and, and compelling way in 3D than it is, you know, with the whole invasion in, in 2D culture where they, the scratch and the movement and all that stuff, it just doesn't really get get your uh, socks going up and down but seeing seeing these images and, and putting it into context um i think is really impressive and and shows that there's so much left to learn uh, about this deadly disease and, and and a lot more ways maybe that we can get at it as somebody who worked in a cancer lab back in my days at at duke go blue devils um yeah, I wasn't the biggest fan of the scratch essay i got to tell you uh spent many a weekend doing some scratch assays and migrating endothelial cells and different cancer cells, breast cancer cells. I think it's a little bit more fun. If I was a, if I was an undergrad working with organoids, uh, well, I mean, ultimately I did still go to grad school, but <laughs> I think it would just be a little bit more exciting, that three-dimensional aspect, don't you think? Oh, for sure. And, you know, as a segue there, because you mentioned it, this is it. Duke's playing today as we record, guys. And if they are out... By the time you hear this, if you're listening, like most of you are, as soon as it hits the, the air, uh, we probably won't be able to to come out with the show in the next couple of weeks. <laughs> They're so viciously depressed. Uh, but moving back to the show, we've got an interview to get to with Dr. Ono. Before we get there, I got a quick message from Stem Cell Technologies. Do you work with skeletal muscle progenitor cells? The Stem Cell Technologies human myocult workflow supports your muscle research from start to finish allowing you to derive, expand, and differentiate human skeletal muscle progenitors. You can also expand mouse myogenic progenitors using the mouse myocult expansion medium. Learn more at www.stemcell.com slash myocult. All right, everybody, with us today, we have a special guest from the University of Texas Health Sciences Center in Houston, Dr. Noriaki Ono who is associate professor there in the Department of Dentistry. Dr. Noriaki Ono's laboratory studies the function of skeletal stem cells in development, disease, and regeneration of bone and cartilage through advanced applications of genetically engineered mice. Their current three major foci are skeletal stem cells in the growth plate, bone marrow, and craniofacial structures and molecular mechanisms governing their behaviors. Dr. Ono, thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome. Uh, I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for being here. Your lab is a unique operation. It's led by two PIs, and your lab actually intersects stem cell biology with bone and tooth biology. This is something that's not always at the forefront of stem cell biology, I'm also talking about like hematopoietic stem cells originating from bone marrow, but bone is actually an amazing model system for studying development. And we've talked with other bone stem cell biologists here on the show, like Dr. Joy Wu from Stanford, 
about how biomedical engineering, for example, is really rapidly intersecting with bone research and stem cell biology as well. Maybe one day make engineered bone tissues from stem cell derived bone one day. So, so in other words, there's a lot going on in this field that stem cell biologists might not know about. So I guess to start off, why don't you give us an overview of what your lab is working on these days, both on the developmental and translational side of bone biology? Sure. So that, you know, as you mentioned that, you know, the bone stem cells, the skeletal stem cells, uh, sort of kind of, you know, second class, you know, considered to be a second class stem cells, you know, people, you know, really don't focus so much effort on studying stem cells. But I guess this field is now blooming, you know, many people coming to be interested in this really sort of enigmatic stem cells that, and, you know, one of the really important feature of these stem cells is that, there are many, many skeletal stem cells in many different types of tissues, and you know each of which has sort of different properties. So it's a really um, interesting, but it's a kind of really exhaustive um, you know, endeavor to hunt down um, and try to find a stem cell that can be used for things like you know tissue engineering or you know, things like that, right? So uh, what we are trying to do is, you know, our lab is by no means any sort of you know IPS you know, lab or things like that, you know, my background is in bone developmental biology, and we have you know, interested in you know, how bone stem cells, you know, what kind of cells do they become? So that we are primarily working on this technique called in vivo linear tracing techniques so that we can mark a specific bone stem cell population in vivo. And so then we can just follow their fate over time using you know imaging or you know histological sections and try to find out where they where they go and what they do and we also combine these techniques with a bunch of other standard stem cell techniques such as you know colony forming unit fibroblast assays and a single cell seq or things like that so the fundamental question we are trying to ask in the lab is that there are because and as i mentioned that because there are so many different subtypes of skeletal stem cells in different part of bones like you know the bone at the edge, the bone in the center, or on the tooth, or in the craniofacial bones, the skull suture. So we're trying to find, um, you know, trying to hand, hand down many different types of skeletal stem cells in different locations. And if there anything, if there's any anything that is common, or uh, they, you know, sharing some characteristics. And um, also, we uh, are also interested in you know, translating these stem cells for regenerative purposes. So we're trying to, I mean, in order to do to to do that, we have to know what kind of molecular properties these stem cells have. So that's also things that we are trying to do. But, you know, we are not a really translational scientist. So we are just only trying to generate a fundamental knowledge about these properties of stem cells in many different types of bone tissues. So that's what we are doing. Yeah, maybe not explicitly translational, but I think there's a lot of implications for the translation of stem cells and generally, but also specifically in the bone to your work. Um, and to that point, I mean, while bone disease, maybe not the most publicized target of cell-based and regenerative therapies, the use of, I guess, stem cell adjacent, you could call them, approaches is widespread in orthopedics, uh, mostly for elite athletes, right? Whether yep. it's this platelet-rich plasma injections or microfracture treatments and other treatments of questionable efficacy, um, maybe pseudoscience there in some of them, but there 
uh, there's a lot out there for elite athletes. And then there, there are these genetic developmental and degenerative diseases that are less widespread, but much more devastating. Uh, for example, osteogenesis imperfecta, osteoporosis, bone cancer. Um, so there's a lot of targets, I think, and not just in sports, but more, I'd say, in medicine and disease. Is there like, I mean, I'm betraying my uh, relatively superficial understanding of bone stem cells, but is is there a, a universal cell type that would or could address all of these conditions? Or does each of these conditions require tailored cell type and or approach? Yeah, I guess that's a really uh, important question. I, I don't think we know any, you know, definitive answers to your questions. But I guess that, um, you know, bone stem cells, skeletal stem cells uh, have really sort of wonderful capabilities of, of course, you know, these are stem cells, they can be, you know, almost indefinitely, you know, be expandable, and you know, especially when they are isolated in vitro. So then, and the other really interesting property is that they secrete a lot of uh, cytokines and sort of, you know, tropic factors to help other cells you know, maybe, maybe doing some good things or bad things. So I think there are two important characteristics is that number one, they can expand a lot. So, you know, in taking advantage of that um, capacity, you know, people use these so-called mesenchymal stem cells, injecting into some sort of injuries or, you know, some degenerative conditions and, you know, try to improve that um, the condition. I think that's, you know, um, it's not a really sort of authentic application of stem cells, right? It's not like stem cells themselves, uh, uh, you know, repairing the tissue. It's it's just the factors that are released from these stem cells that are helping, the, you know, the uh, endogenous tissues to heal. I think that's, you know, one clever application, but it's, you know, there are many efficacy issues and consistency issue, right? The reproducibility issues. So then I think that, you know, kind of the quality control is a huge, huge issue in the field. And of course that in, let's say, you know, huge bone defect or like, you know, you know, sort of uh, unhealed uh, fractures, large unhealed fractures, you know, of course there are ways to, you know, ask these stem cells to become bones. Maybe we can just get, need to get some help from uh, tissue engineers to facilitate these cells into a bone cell. So I think that's, um, there are two aspects. Um, Right, so I guess that we, I think that the field is still, still trying to learn that what is the best way of, you know, how can we take advantage of these stem cells? And of course, my interest is that, you know, how we can assist or, you know, enhance these endogenous, naive stem cells, you know, to do the, to do a better job. But there are many, many different aspects. And, you know, it's, uh, there's so many investigators who are interested in, you know, taking advantage of these amazing capabilities. Yeah, it's such a powerful cell type, cell lineage. And then there's, like you just said it yourself, there's so much that we don't know about how the bone develops and how cartilage develops, for example, and how these different cell types and these niches crosstalk and interact with each other. Uh, and this is actually something that you studied very recently in a recent paper, a Nature Communications paper, that actually dove a little deeper into this developmental crosstalk in the bone, examining the fate of early perichondrial cells and developing bones. And this study actually used a lot of the in vivo cell lineage tracing technologies that you're alluding to to actually show that these fetal perichondrial cells 
contribute to bone and marrow stromal compartments under the regulation of a pretty famous signaling pathway, hedgehog signaling in particular. So take us through this work that came out recently and kind of more broadly talk about some of the, in your mind, the biggest questions, biggest remaining questions in understanding bone development. Yeah, so then I guess that we are all, you know, also you know, trying to understand it, but there are many different types of stem cells that I mentioned. And it seems that um, the property changes over time. So, you know, um, the stem cells in age, age time and the stem cell in young time, they're different. So, you know, one of, uh, I think one of the most sort of translational, translational relevant question is that can we actually, you know, rejuvenate? you know, old stem cells to young ones to uh, facilitate healing. I think that's one of the really exciting um, pathways that um, need to be sort of addressed. And we are interested in, you know, um, try to identify the, you know, the signatures of these old stem cells versus young stem cells and how they can be, you know, sort of, you know, convertible. And the other thing is that we really want to know is that what is the role of these um, scattered stem cells in these you know, famous bone disease conditions such as you know, osteoporosis or you know, there are bone cancers or things like that? I guess there are um, multiple uh, you know, open-ended questions in the field. Um, but I guess that, um, yeah, uh, still right now, the biggest, biggest limitation is that, yes, we know that these scattered stem cells can be isolated um, you know, in vitro, and it can be transplanted, but you know where these cells are actually located in vivo and what they are doing in you know naive condition. I think that's also really still remaining. You know, people now trying to understand more and more, but it's still insufficient. So um, there are three questions that we're trying to ask right now in in our lab. All right. So forgive me. This may be a bit outside your expertise, but I'm sure you've considered. I mean, your focus on the on the niche, and you you alluded there earlier to the trophic factors that are produced by these skeletal uh, stem cells and their derivatives. So I'm sure you have very much considered the the niche and the milieu and secreted factors there, and perhaps. Um, being that you're focused on this fetal bone marrow or what, what will become the bone marrow, uh, you may have considered the impact your work could have on the hematopoietic stem cell field. Uh, Arun will tell you, I am a real fool for uh, the blood and I always try to bring the conversation in that direction. So forgive me, but uh, the niche that fosters hematopoietic stem cell genesis and maintenance is like a holy grail in hematology and more widely in translational medicine and the components of that niche have stirred fierce debate. Is it the endothelial cells, periosteum, mesenchymal cells, leptin-positive cells? There's a case to be made for all of them, and I'm sure that they're not mutually exclusive, but uh, your work, it's focused on the endochondral bone development um, and you know that involving the bone and presumably the marrow. Do you have any thoughts about the hematopoietic stem cell niche specifically? Do you think that these fetal cells, and this is where my interest really is, because this is like a, a pluripotent stem cell show. Do you think the, these fetal cells that you've identified could contribute to that early niche that supports uh, hematopoietic stem cell establishment, colonization and establishment in the marrow? Yeah, definitely. I guess that that's you know one of the most sort of prime exa example of how development of the biology can you know help you know, let's say IPS researchers to identify 
not factors to recruit and retain in the bone marrow. I guess, you know, what, what I can tell is that, um, you know, bone establishment of bone marrow hematopoiesis is a very, very organized and it's a really, really important step. Um, so I guess one of the very critical, uh, you know, the event, you know, for that to happen, you know, for the hematopoietic stem cells to come to live in the bone marrow, you know, is that these chondrocytes in endochondral bone development, these chondrocytes have to undergo hypertrophy and become a very specialized sort of ballooned up cells. And they, you know, some of them, these cells die, but, you know, some of these hypertrophic chondrocytes somehow can survive and transform into marostromal cells. And we know that these hypertrophic chondrocytes express a a lot of lot of you know trophic factors you know including you know VGF and India hedgehog and you know whole different types of cells you know you know the trophic factors so I think that there are something really sort of magical about these you know hypertrophic chondrocytes you know that they either die or survive and become bone marrow you know stromal cells that support bone marrow hematopoiesis so I think that. Is you know uh, back you're going back to your original question that you know thinking about the niche for um, you know hematopoietic stem cells. I think that it's really important to think about the mechanism and you know what kind of uh, transition is going on between these hypertrophic chondrocytes, you know, eventually becoming into marostromal cells that support hematopoiesis. So I think there will be a lot of lot of things we can learn from. Um, these type of cells. But having said that, there's no really, really good assays to understand the biology of hypochondrocytes uh, um, at this moment because you know hypochondrocytes is so big; it's about like you know hundred uh, micrometer diameter, and it's, it's such a fragile cells. So that um, let's say you know conventional you know single cell RNA seq analysis, they they cannot capture these cells. You know we are all missing out these cells. So that we have to have some sort of more advanced, let's say, you know, spatial, but, you know, transcriptomics or things like that to understand what's going on in these cells. But I think that, um, and of course, uh, in, you know, um, as I recently uh, we showed that these perichondrial cells also contribute to this, the formation of the niche. So there, it's a really complex process, only not only hyperchondrocytes, but also uh, perichondrial cells moving into the marrow cavity with, you know, blood vessels and, you know, make some sort of really magical place for hematopoietic cells, stem cells coming into, you know, migrate into the, the vulnerable space. I think that's a really interesting, interesting question. I don't know if, is what is the cocktail or, you know, the mix that um, welcome hematopoietic stem cell to the marrow space, but I guess that's, that's a really, really uh, important thing that we can learn from bone developmental biology. Yeah, uh, that's still largely un, uh, you know, un, unresolved. Yeah, and like you alluded to, I think there's a lot of really exciting technologies that'll help us answer some of these questions. And I, I think you know, it's a given that 
this is the stem cell podcast and of course on every episode Dalen's going to bring up the hematopoietic stem cell in some capacity this is a running gag for us so thank you for for answering that question but you know we're talking about bone biology here and there's another aspect of your lab that we alluded to which of course is the focus on tooth development and tooth biology and it's not often that we talk about the intersection of dentistry and tooth biology with stem cell biology but both you and the co-PI of your lab, Dr. Juanita Ono, are dentists by training. And in fact, just looking at the composition of your lab through your lab website, it seems like most of your trainees actually have a dental background with many of your lab members having trained as dentists in Japan in particular. It's it's such a unique path and it's not something we talk about a lot here on the show. So I'm just really curious about your training and your path as a dentist slash stem cell biologist. And also yeah. what inspired you to go into the stem cell side of things as a as yeah. a trained dentist. So tell yeah. us more about your path. Yeah. I mean, thank you for asking that. So, you know, one of the things that I have to tell you is that, um, you know, my, I, you know, my family is a heavy dentist family. So my mom, my uh, grandpa, I mean, you know, I'm a third generation dentist. Um, so then, you know, it's a, it's a long history. Um, but I mean, you know, when I, um, you know, went, went into dental school, it's like, you know, dentistry is more about the art, but, you know, there are some other science component, but it's also um, pretty much, uh, it's a, it's a sort of different things, you know, the art and the science are pretty much different. I was really fortunate that when I was in dental school, there are many, many, uh, you know, dentists, scientists, researchers who have contributed you know, substantially um, to the biology of bone and tooth development. So, um it's uh, I was kind of really lucky enough to be exposed to the excitement of science, especially you know regarding bone biology. And when I did my PhD, I was really lucky enough to land on a lab, uh, you know, who is a prominent biologist, from prominent bone biologist, uh, Dr. Masaki Noda. He's a very prominent bone biologist. So then, it, that that you know, the, my training during my PhD sort of expanded my perspective. Not only you know, it's not all, you know, the dentistry. It's not only about you know tooth. It's like and there is something else that we really, really you know care need to care about. So then. You know, the, that that was around the early 2000, and that was the time that, you know, sort of the stem cell biology started to explode in the field. So through reading all these you know, literatures and one wonderful story, especially about actual hematopoietic stem cells, right? Hmm. Skin, you know, intestinal stem cells, skin stem cells. Then, you know, I thought about maybe, you know, we have to, learn more about stem cells in bones and teeth so that's how that inspiration that i got you know around 20 years ago when i was a phd student you know it just continued on and on until this day so i was lucky enough to be supported my um, excellent mentors who uh, supported my uh, you know journey to here so it's a uh, and of course uh, the other thing uh, i i'm really pretty much dedicated to um sort of fostering because i'm a dentist myself so I really want to foster the next generation of dentist scientists because um, it's a really important for it's a very small cohort of you know scientists, right? So I think it's a you know I, I'm a unique in a unique position to sort of help help them to find more exciting projects and exciting directions that they can carry forward. 
So that is sort of my um, dedication and my uh, commitment. So that's why, and also, you know, because I have a connection <laughs> to my original alma mater, um, then it's very, very easy for me to find highly motivated individuals <laughs> who are interested in doing this skill distance research. So, uh, yeah, so that's how I came along. And yes, um, I think I, I know it's, uh, I have a really unique background, but actually it really helps uh, you know, me to understand the whole picture, uh, you know, as a, I'm an orthodontist in training and in orthodontics, you know, really deals with uh, the bone development in the, in the skull and in the face. Mm-hmm. So uh, we really understand the value of, you know, how significant is the bone development biology slash stem cell biology can be in, uh, you know, the clinical relevant field. Yeah. Yeah. You are a rare breed. Uh, Noriaki, and not just a, a, a dentist in stem cells, but a dentist in stem cells who appreciates the beauty of the hematopoietic stem cell. We need more of you, my friend. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, moving back to the bone, as Arun is probably going to yell at me to do, and we're going to get back to the bone. Uh, it's well documented that bone repair and homeostasis in adults is governed in large part by mechanical forces. And that totally makes sense. And biomechanical influences are increasingly believed to play a role in a host of stem cell differentiation processes. You know, there's this variable stiffness of the growth substrate can have a modulatory influence on differentiation of mesenchymal stem cells. I was published like over 10 years ago and we made a big splash, but also shear stress shown to play a role in hematopoietic and vascular differentiation and other components of the mechanical environment from hydrostatic pressure to even microgravity. We could get Aruna to talk about that. I've also been implicated in stem cell differentiation. But in the case of fetal perichondrial cells, perhaps there's not a lot of mechanical stress there, you know, floating around in the amniotic fluid. Um, But you've also studied unique skeletal stem cells in the growth plate in, in adult mice. So you, I'm sure, are familiar with this notion. Have you considered the potential role of mechanical force in driving unique properties of differentiation in either that fetal perichondrial context or in the growth plate? What do you know about that? Yeah, it's a really fantastic question. So that, um, you know, this, there is no doubt that uh, mechanical loading is an essential component of um, you know forming probably the niche for skeletal stem cells, and um, one of the really interesting finding that I uh, we came across uh, when we identified the skeletal stem cells in the resting zone of the postnatal growth plate. Um, so these stem cells are formed in the specific portion of the growth plate called uh, the resting zone, but that uh, the formation of that layer actually coincides with the form, you know, the formation of this, you know, the supporting niche called secondary secretion center. And that structure, you know, happens only occurs only in a postnatally when the mice, the baby mice start to crawl and things like that. So I think that there is a, there's a lot of correlation and probably, uh, you know, causative relationship, which is that, you know, um, the mechanical loading on this uh, cartilaginous structure will sort of induce cell differentiation and a vascularization that makes a new environment a niche. And that in turn switch on 
you know, another niche factor and, you know, stimulates to form another, you know, chondrocyte, you know, the growth based stem cells. So I think a really um, important, um, you know, there's feedback loop and it's a mechanical learning is definitely one of the most important factors. Um, and um, and we know that, you know, mechanical unloading leads to bone loss, and which is, of course, you know, in part mediated by, you know, bone resolving osteoclasts. But also, um, it's you know for sure that the cells are sensing this mechanical loading at the cells that are you know on the bone surface or within the bone. So within the bone, there are osteocytes. You know, there are you know projecting like you know almost like neuron. They're projecting these dendrites, connecting each other, and in their you know share stress and food stress. You know, going around. And these cells, you know, sensing this you know alteration in mechanical environment and changing the signal. You know, on the bone surface, and uh, we think that there are some these keratosynthetic stem cells near the bone surface. So there are cells probably directly or indirectly sense these changes in, in mechanical loading, and um, you know, sort of you know change, start to change their behavior. So it's a whole cascade of direct and indirect, um, you know, um, the thing. And you know, mechanical loading it's one of another really mysterious factors, and it's depending on the direction of the force and the side of the force exerted, you have differential reactions. So it's uh, it's not like, you know, uh, side kind that is, you know, it can be explained by gradient. It's like, it's a more three-dimensional, more complex uh, things. But you know, considering the skeletal stem cells are very meticulously anchored to the extracellular metrics, you know, mechanical loading is going to be one of the, you know, next, important factor that need to be sort of disentangled, you know, what they do in uh, stem cell, re self renewal and cell differentiation. It's a really, really deep and, you know, never ending area, I think. Yeah, it's a really important. Yeah, it's a very hot area of study. I mean, of course, the Nobel Prize a couple of years ago was given to mechanobiology and mechanosensing in the piezo channels as well. And and certainly in the stem cell field, we've alluded to just how important mechanosensing and mechanobiology is to differentiation, all different aspects of stem cell biology, really. And we also talked about the importance of the niche a lot here on this this conversation. But I think in addition to the importance of the niche and the biology, there's also the importance of the niche in the development of a of a biologist, so development of a scientist, right? And you mentioned yourself, you have such uh, gratitude to your mentors for developing you and providing you the right niche to become that you know dentist, you know stem cell biologist that you are. And you actually recently moved your niche. You moved to the University of Texas Health Sciences Center at Houston. That was my transition there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> hope you enjoy that one. Yeah. yeah, so you recently moved to the University of Texas Health Science Center in Houston after being at the University of Michigan for, for a while, a few years. And some folks actually may not know this, but UT Health is located in the Texas Medical Center, which is actually the biggest medical center in the world. It's a ridiculously gigantic complex, which kind of just blows my mind about how many different institutions they are in just that couple miles, square mile uh, area in Houston. I think there's more than like 60 medical institutions in this two square mile area of Houston and some real 
powerhouses of medical research in this area, including the Baylor Medical Center, Houston Methodist, MD Anderson, and I can go on for forever here. You know, the reputation of the medical center really speaks for itself. But, you know, tell us about that transition. Tell us about your time so far at UT Health and what made you move there and, you know, what it's like to work and collaborate in such an incredible place for medical research. Yeah, thank you for asking that. I mean, you know, um, sort of um, as a, you know, academic researcher, it's um, you know, moving across the country is also a process. So, meaning that uh, I've been in the United States for um, fourteen years already, and this is my third institution. So, it's um, I think it's a really process for me. It's really. By moving around different institutions, I think I feel that I'm growing up a lot because getting getting to know different systems and different types of um, you know regulations or protocols. So it's a it's a really a process. So um, and it's uh, I did my postdoc in uh, MGH uh, under Hank Cronenberg, um, and he's a prominent endocrinologist. And it's uh, MGH is a fantastic institute. And it's a really also very competitive institution. And, you know, I got all the scientific inspiration from there. And of course, um, then uh, I moved to uh, Michigan. It's Michigan is also, you know, top-notch, really fantastic institution. And um, so then it's, uh, it, you know, I kind of, kind of really being, kind of continue to be exposed to, you know, different institutions, different really nice institutions. So I'm also, again, I have to say I'm really lucky now to be, you know, in the really top-notch institution. Um, and of course, the I know the reason that, uh, you know, I moved down to Houston from Michigan is that it's, uh, you know, um, being assistant professor, you know, I was in assistant professor in Michigan, and then I you know, moved back to a tenured associate professor position. But um, it's, a, you know, promotion and a tenure is just only sort of one thing, right? It's only one sort of, you know, award and it's a recognition. But at the same time, you know, um, I was also looking for the opportunity to expand and continue the momentum of my research. So then, um, really, all about the timing that, uh, um, and it, you know, it was lucky but unlucky that, you know, it was a COVID time. So my lab didn't have so many people in my lab. And it, my lab was relatively compact at the time now before moving here. So I just took the opportunity to, you know, and you know, just make another move from Michigan to here. And it's really a fantastic um, environment. And, uh, you know, there are so many, many different institutions. So then uh, I think it's a, you know, by moving around across the country, it makes me, you know, get to know a lot more people, you know, by each move, right? So it's really, really uh, an asset for me. So uh, it's a really all about, you know, me growing up and me getting to know all other all the different types of people and you know me uh sort of expanding my network so um but it's it's not easy actually <laughs> you know moving across the country with you know my spouse investigator and dr Juanita ono and you know my kid it's not easy but the, the reward is actually pretty high um and i was pretty much sure that coming here you know, my research program is will even grow bigger. So that was, you know, what I was aiming for. But that's a really one of the most difficult decisions that we have to make. 
in our um, the career as scientists. But uh, yeah, I've been pretty much lucky that I have identified really nice um, you know, opportunities each time. So uh, I want to circle back to your family history a bit. I mean, you were born to be a dentist slash orthodontist, right? And you kind of went your own way. We talked about that. But you're talking to a guy here who's had braces three times. Okay, I've done it all. I had the regular, I had the lingual, I had the Invisalign three times in my life. Uh, when I was a teenager, when I was in grad school, and just recently a couple of years ago. And, and what I'll say about orthodonty, if that's how you say it, is that... um. It's really advanced, the tech, the technical elements of it, right? Like back in the day, they put a whole ma mass of clay in my mouth to get the molds. Last time I went, they just put the wand in there. You know, they do like LIDAR pretty much to get the, the scan. So, I mean, I think that's for me just a vivid example in how the how the clinical or health health care providing landscape has really changed due to technology. So I want you to paint a picture for me. I mean, I look at your papers. You got the most beautiful images and talking to an expert in any field is a great opportunity. And as you've done already on the show today, you've kind of uh, sketched out what the niche looks like and the, the different cell types. So I want you to paint a picture for me. Maybe you will never step foot into the clinic again, but do you envision that there will be an integration of like cells with your garden variety uh, dentistry, orthodontia, or are we just talking about models for understanding, you know, craniofacial uh, defects and or bone disease? Is is there really a, a, at some point going to be a cell-based dentistry, do you think, or is that just unnecessary at this point? Yeah, I think it's actually happening. I mean, meaning that, you know, by the way, you know, I, um, you know, I haven't really renounced my status as orthodontist. I'm trying to be engaged in graduate orthodontic, you know, the, the program. It's like, and I go to the clinic and just stand there and, you know, you know, guide residents you know, only twice a month and that's it. And that's enough for me. But, you know, I think it's really important for me to keep that aspect. Anyway, um, I think that the cell-based, um, you know, dentistry, so that you know, actually also dentics doesn't require so much cell-based therapy. However, you know, there are other, you know, specialty like, you know, periodontics, you know, there are many patients who lost the periodontal bone, then they need to regenerate bone. In that kind of case, there are many, you know, applications, there are many opportunities for um, regeneration, such as that there are, um, Many uh, clinicians use some sort of neurotrophic you know, factors, right? BMP2s or some of the factors to apply these factors into the defect so that they can make more bones so that they can do the restorative procedures, you know, much more effectively. So there is a, you know, the dentistry is, of course, you know, at a much smaller scale than, let's say, you know, orthopedic reconstructions and things like that. But I guess there is a, you know, there's a lot of opportunity for regenerative medicine. So I think that I have to tell you that regenerative medicine is a big agenda in dentistry. So that um, I think it's uh, almost like, um, you know, as the technology for stem cell-based therapy become more sophisticated, improved, suddenly there will be, you know, um, more sort of unique and, you know, uh, probably new application of this technology to regenerate, you know, the, the bones and tooth and their surrounding tissues. So uh, there's no doubt it's, deeply deeply um relevant to dentistry yeah 
that's something I can say. I can say. Well, great. I mean, maybe my fourth time around with the uh, braces won't need any cell based therapies. But by the time <laughs> my uh, my teeth start falling out, I guess I'll have I'll have someone to talk to. Um, <laughs> Uh, anyway, thanks for for uh, this great conversation. We're not going to let you leave just yet. We got a couple of peripheral questions, but it's been so great talking to somebody in a in a, a field we don't talk about enough, which is you know the teeth and the mouth and yeah. the craniofacial and bone, all of it. Um, but before we let you go, we have a couple uh, science related questions for you. Uh, first is. What is one hobby that you always wanted to pursue but were never able to? Yeah, actually, I really, you know, want, wanted to play the piano, but I somehow, you know, missed the opportunity to do that in my career. And, you know, when I you know, grew up, you know, I never had enough time to do that. Actually, my seven years old, she's doing the lesson. So I'm kind of, you know, sitting behind and trying to understand. But, you know, I have so many other things to do. So I don't have time to do so maybe after i uh, retire maybe maybe we have to pick up pick up this hobby and you know, try to spend time to learn the lesson and what i uh, learned from my um you know daughter's lesson is that this is really really sort of systematic it's almost like she's learning the way how to code um in the algorithm so this is a very very good you know fast way of sort of scientific um education so i'm really impressed that how you know these you know um the piano is actually a very a very making a good foundation for um you know think about anything in a very systematic way so this is something I really want to do, but I haven't done that. And I I, I I hope that I'm going to be able to do that after retirement. Don't wait. Hey, I mean, <laughs> it's never too late. Everyone talks about the plasticity of a child's mind and learning a, yep, a musical yep. instrument. But just take inspiration from my co-host, Arun, who mm -hmm. has picked up the guitar and started strumming. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with you on board and a few other guests that we've spoken to who have aspirations in a similar vein, I think we've got the critical threshold to start our stem cell jam band. I will be singing lead vocals. Uh, <laughs> apologies in advance to anybody who has to hear it. Finally, the last question. What is the best piece of advice that you've ever been given, either professional or not? Yeah, so, um, you know, I have to admit that I have received so many good advice, good advices from my mentors and you know, my friends and, you know, my colleagues um, but by far the most impactful one was that the one from uh, my mentor, you know, he said that you know, this can be a little bit, you know, cruel, but he told me that I find my own way and you find your own way, which means that, you know, you got to find, you know, what you want, you know, and don't, you know, rely on me too much. You know, you have your own passion, you know, and of course you have your own career. And so that's the most impactful world. Um, it's, um, you know, it's it's all about the context, right? <laughs> you know, uh, but in that specific context of conversation, you know, this was a hugely, you know, helpful for me to find my own way, you know. That's why I sort of, um, it's just uh, it, simple, like six, you know, words, <laughs> sentence can have a huge impact for somebody's uh, career. And so I was 
you know, I was really amazed that uh, how impactful this advice can be. Yeah. So I'm still finding my own way. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think you've zeroed in on it. You you found a good niche, so to speak. And uh, that is great advice. I mean, no scientist wants a clone of themselves with the same ideas. And that's what really builds innovation, right? It's giving a little bit of yourself to the mentee so they can make the most out of what you couldn't achieve. And I think you are a great example of that on both sides. You've really transcended dentistry and orthodontics and gone deep in the stem cells. And I'm sure you're a, a, an even better mentor to your group. So um, appreciate you just on behalf of all the people in your life, but also appreciate you joining us uh, to talk to us and our listeners about your unique path. Noriaki, thank you again for joining us on the show today. Thank you, my pleasure. All right, everybody, that brings us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or by email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. Until the next episode, that'll do it for this couple weeks i'm off to fill out my bracket and watch duke struggle to win hopefully <laughs> <laughs>